Welcome to JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 92. In 1981, we saw the publication of one of the most controversial books ever to be written about the Kennedy assassination. It was David Lifton's bestseller, Best Evidence, Disguise and Deception in the Assassination of John F. Kennedy. But let's rewind the tape for a minute. Late in 1964, just around the time that the Warren Commission report was published, Lifton, like so many Americans in this country, became interested in the JFK case. And wouldn't you know it, that happened after attending a lecture by Mark Lane on the topic of the Kennedy assassination and, of course, the related conspiracy to cover up the truth. Lifton was more than interested, and interested enough to purchase one of the 26-volume sets of the Warren Commission report. It wasn't long afterward when he started his own investigation and research into the Kennedy case. The quest was an all-consuming one in Lifton's life. In 1966, Lifton was dismissed from UCLA for neglecting his studies, and that was undoubtedly attributable to his increasing interest in the case. He quit his aerospace job, too, and for a time, Lifton began devoting all of his time to the Kennedy assassination. It was at UCLA that he began his interesting interaction with Warren Commission attorney Wesley Liebler. Lifton was not your average college student. He had already graduated from Cornell University's School of Engineering Physics in 1962, and he had made his way to the West Coast, enrolling at UCLA, to work on an advanced degree in engineering. By January 1967, he had begun to get some traction in the assassination research community, and he presented a special report that he prepared along with David Welsh, which was featured in an issue of Ramparts magazine and was entitled The Case for Three Assassins. This report laid out the scenario that more than one assassin was firing at Kennedy based on anomalies in the medical evidence. David Lifton spent 15 intense years studying the case from about 1966 to 1981, when he was finally able to publish Best Evidence. The book was rejected by over 20 publishers before Macmillan gave Lifton a $10,000 advance and published his book. Due to the controversial nature of the book, Macmillan went to unusual lengths to fact-check it. Best Evidence eventually reached number four on the New York Times bestseller list, and it was also a Book of the Month Club selection in 1990. Edwin McDowell of the New York Times described Best Evidence as, and I quote, one of the most durable of the dozens of books about the Kennedy assassination. Despite this fact, the distribution of the book was somewhat limited. Kent Carroll of Carroll and Graff Publishers reprinted a softcover version in 1988, and by 1990, the book had sold 60,000 copies that year. In the updated 1988 edition of Best Evidence, Lifton was responsible for the first publication of a series of autopsy photographs taken of President Kennedy at Bethesda Naval Medical Center. Lifton had acquired these photos after the initial publication of Best Evidence, 
And these were photos that he had obtained from a former Secret Service employee who had made private copies with the permission of Secret Service agent Roy Kellerman. Now, we all have to wonder how Roy Kellerman could have had authority to do that, but apparently he did. Lifton also used the autopsy photos during his appearance on the October 1988 PBS episode of Nova entitled, Who Shot President Kennedy? This was the first time they were shown on television. Lifton claims that the actual photographs are consistent with his thesis of body alteration. Not everyone in the literary community was on board and okay with the introduction of these new theories surrounding the assassination, despite the meticulous work done by Lifton on the topic. Ed Magnuson of Time Magazine described the theory as, and I quote, bizarre. But regardless, in his review, he wrote that Lifton's work was, and I quote, meticulously researched. According to Magnuson, preposterous, he questioned, Absolutely. Yet there is virtually no factual claim in Lifton's book that is not supported by the public record or his own interviews, many of them with the lowly hospital and military bystanders whom official probes had overlooked. Thomas Powers gave a critical review of the book in New York Magazine, stating, and I quote, There are a lot of curious theories about what happened to John F. Kennedy on November 22, 1963, but none quite so bizarre as David Lifton's a theory that makes all previous speculation about the president's murder <laughs> look like the work of dull and sober men. Harrison Salisbury reviewed the book for the New York Times, and he wrote, No one before Mr. Lifton has construed a theory so complicated, so quirky, and in such violation of every law of common sense and reason. And there were others, such as Stephen Ambrose, who discussed the book and wrote in 1992, Mr. Lifton argues that the conspirators who killed Kennedy got possession of Kennedy's body somewhere between Dallas and Washington, then removed his brain and otherwise altered his body and wounds to support a single gunman theory. Mr. Lifton's account of how this was done is almost impossible to follow, almost impossible to believe, and almost impossible to refute. Well, to be honest with you, I have some of the same feelings about it all. Yet I continue to be drawn back to the meticulous facts that were preserved in his book and do appear to be true. There are certainly no lack of big-time critics, and you've just heard a few. Another one, a big-time critic of the conspiracy theories in general, is author and lawyer Gerald Posner, who's described Lifton's book as one of the most unusual conspiracy theories that relies on an elaborate shell game involving rapid exchanges of coffins, a decoy ambulance, and a switched body shroud. He contends that once the body of President Kennedy was stolen from Air Force One, a covert team of surgeons surgically altered the corpse before the autopsy later that day, purportedly so the autopsy physicians would determine the bullets that hit the president were fired from the rear, thereby sealing the case against Oswald. Vincent Bugliosi also devoted some important time to this topic in his 2007 book, Reclaiming History, The Assassination of President John F. Kennedy. In fact, he dedicated 12 pages to Lifton's theory, and Bugliosi prefaced his own comments, stating that 
The theory is so unhinged that it really doesn't deserve one word in any serious treatment of the assassination, but that he was forced to devote some time to talking about the nonsense of a most exquisite nature due to the number of people who treated it seriously. Well, really, there you have it. People may not like it. People may want to ignore it, but people keep having to come back to it because there is solid evidence that many parts of what we are studying in this episode are simply true. Yet it's really hard to put it all together. I could go on and on about the negative reviews of best evidence across the country in 1981, but still, other reviewers characterize Lifton's work as meticulously detailed, methodical, and well-documented, and, in the end, a challenge to the Warren Commission. Lifton captured many key witnesses on tape, both video and audio, and in fact, in the 1990s, those tapes were provided to the ARRB and were used in the interrogation of some of the key witnesses that were questioned under oath by the board. You may recall all of that from our earlier episodes. They were critical to getting at the truth with those particular witnesses. Lifton also put together a short 37-minute documentary that was also entitled Best Evidence, and much of it focuses on the evidence that points to a body snatch of the president and an ensuing pre-autopsy autopsy. And one of the linchpin elements that Lifton uses to prove his theory is that the president arrived at the Bethesda morgue in a plain shipping casket and not the ceremonial casket that he left Parkland Hospital in. Well, how could that be? Weren't members of the Irish Mafia and the Kennedy crew with the body all the way from Parkland to Bethesda? I can tell you that, to this day, I am a skeptic of this theory. But... Let's listen to David Lifton himself, along with several key witnesses that day at Bethesda, as they make the case for the president's arrival in a shipping casket and for other holes in the sequence of events and the events themselves that clearly point to the presence of a sinister act. So you, as the juror, will have to listen closely and determine if what you are hearing is real, because if it is real, well, I would just say... Houston, we have a problem. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 92 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Hello, I'm David Lifton. In 1963, when President Kennedy was assassinated, I was a graduate student at UCLA and working nights on the Apollo space program. I admired President Kennedy a great deal and was proud to be part of his effort to put a man on the moon. In the fall of 1964, the special commission appointed by President Lyndon Johnson and headed by Chief Justice Earl Warren released a report of its findings on the Kennedy assassination, the Warren Report. I studied that report, focusing on an exhibit to be found in volume 18, black and white frames of the home movie film taken by Abraham Zabruder, some of which were published in color in Life magazine. Those frames contain startling information. They showed that in response to the fatal shot, President Kennedy's head was thrust backwards, violently backwards. As a graduate of Cornell University with a degree in engineering physics, 
This backward motion seemed hard evidence to me that President Kennedy was shot from the front. And that wasn't the only evidence. Two-thirds of the witnesses thought he'd been shot from the front. And most important of all, when the president was brought to Parkland Memorial Hospital minutes after the shooting, the doctors and nurses there thought he'd been shot from the front. The Warren Commission concluded otherwise, that the president was shot from behind. What about the head snap? It was never mentioned. What about the witnesses? They were wrong. They heard echoes. And what about the Dallas doctors? They too were simply wrong. But I couldn't accept this. It all seemed too improbable. And yet, a Warren Commission attorney told me that in order to believe that President Kennedy was shot from the front, you had to believe the two Navy autopsy doctors who had testified before the commission had lied under oath. That too seemed improbable. And so I struggled with a contradiction. Which evidence to believe? The Dallas evidence, which seemed to indicate that President Kennedy was struck from the front, or the government conclusion, backed by the Bethesda autopsy, that the president was struck from behind. Both couldn't be correct, or so it seemed. And then I thought of a possibility nobody had addressed, that nobody was lying, that everybody was telling the truth, but that somebody had altered the body. That's right, there had been surgery on the body prior to the autopsy, not clinical surgery to save the president's life, but post-mortem surgery to remove bullets and alter wounds. If true, the doctors didn't lie to the investigators, the body lied to the doctors. The body is evidence, the best evidence, and this post-mortem surgery is a crime. At the very least, it's an obstruction of justice. At worst, it's part of a conspiracy to take the president's life and then falsify the facts about his death. This illicit surgery is the central thesis of my book, Best Evidence. It took 15 years to research and write, and was published in January 1981. The film you're about to see was produced about three months earlier, in October 1980. Its purpose was to get the key witnesses on camera before they themselves realized the full implication of the information they possessed. The film deals with a single issue, the interception and the alteration of President Kennedy's body prior to autopsy. And the story begins in Dallas on November 22, 1963, at Parkland Memorial Hospital. At 1 p.m. in Parkland Hospital, President Kennedy was pronounced dead. His body was returned to Air Force One and flown to Washington. Six hours after the shooting, an autopsy was performed at Bethesda Naval Hospital in the morgue of the U.S. Navy Medical School, where Dennis David was chief of the day. Seventeen years later, Dennis David, now a food company executive in Hoopston, Illinois, is talking about what he saw that night. Are you scared? Not anymore. Not anymore. I would have been, uh, I know that for a number of years afterwards, I was afraid to say anything about what I saw that night. But you tell me then that if I had had this conversation with you in 1964 or 5, and I told you this or showed you these pictures, and then we went into the implications of the sequence that you witnessed, that you would be more frightened. In 1964 or 65, I wouldn't even have talked to you. Dennis David is one of several people who are now talking, talking to me about what they saw that day. I spoke with the funeral attendant who placed the president's body in its casket in Dallas, the Bethesda medical technician who removed the body from its casket in the autopsy room, and the x-ray technician who participated in the autopsy. What these men say now about what they saw then cast doubt on the official version of the events that day, because all these men provide new information about the most important evidence in the case, President Kennedy's body. In any shooting, the autopsy report, which describes the body, is used to determine the facts of the case.
The Warren Commission, therefore, relied on the way the body looked at the time of the autopsy in Bethesda to reach its conclusions about what happened in Dallas. But the standard legal procedure didn't work this time. And in my book, Best Evidence, I explain why the autopsy failed to reveal the truth about Dallas. Between the Dallas shooting and the Bethesda autopsy, six hours later, President Kennedy's body was secretly removed from the casket. It was then surgically changed. Wounds were altered. Bullets were removed. The body was returned in time for the autopsy, returned as a medical forgery which told a false story of the shooting. And here is evidence that the body was indeed surgically changed. This is the FBI report written by the two agents who actually attended the autopsy. James Siebert and Francis O'Neill wrote that when the body was removed from the casket, it was, quote, apparent that a tracheotomy had been performed as well as surgery of the head area, namely in the top of the skull. In fact, no surgery of the head was performed in Dallas, only a tracheotomy. So if this FBI report is correct, someone must have had access to the body before it reached Bethesda, and my witnesses indicate someone did. I've traced the journey of the body, beginning with Aubrey Reich. That afternoon, he worked for the O'Neill Funeral Home in Dallas. Now he's a sergeant with the Highland Park, Texas, police. I helped put President Kennedy's body in a bronze ceremonial casket on November 22, 1963, at Parker Memorial Hospital. That evening at approximately 8 o'clock, the body arrived in a, in a gray metal casket. In Bethesda, Paul O'Connor was a medical technician who assisted the autopsy doctors. Today, he's a retired police officer and lives in Gainesville, Florida. When President Kennedy's body was brought to the morgue, what kind of casket was it in? It was a typical, what I call a typical pink, pinkish gray uh, shipping casket. Uh, the type of casket that they usually ship bodies from one part of the country to the other. Uh, it was just a plain casket, uh, I'd say cheap casket. Could you please describe the coffin into which you put the body of the president? It was a bronze metal uh, coffin with a, it was a light bronze or a dark bronze coffin with a light lighter bronze handles on it. It was a very nice, expensive type uh, casket. It was a very plain casket, and when I say plain, I mean it was a pinkish gray. It had pink and gray uh, on the sides. Uh, there was nothing fancy about it as far as being bronze. Uh, it wasn't bronze. About how much would you say it weighed? I would venture to say it weighed close to a thousand pounds. About how much would you say it weighed? Oh, with the body, uh, maybe... Without the body. Oh, maybe uh, 60 pounds. Paul O'Connor's description of the casket brought to Bethesda was supported by Dennis David, who was there when the ambulance came in. As I recall, it was a black, unmarked ambulance. And we offloaded a casket, and it was carried into the autopsy room. Uh, this casket is a plain gray box, if you will, metal box, Anybody's ever been in Vietnam would know what I'm talking about. We ship hundreds of bodies out of there in the same type of casket. It's just a plain shipping casket. In the picture here, you can tell this is not a shipping casket. A shipping casket would be what they'd ship a body back from, say, Vietnam in. This couldn't be a shipping casket. This is a high-class casket here. That was Aubrey Reich, who was in Dallas. I showed the same picture to Dennis David. I'm showing you here some pictures taken at Love Field in Dallas, Texas, was that the casket you saw taken in the back entrance from uh, at the loading dock? You're talking about the black ambulance? Yeah, the black ambulance. No. No. As I said, the one that we offloaded there was a, 
a standard government issue type uh, plastic metal, I mean, a, a metal, gray metal box that obviously is a casket, but nothing, you know, not with the side arms or the side rails and all this, just handles on the side. Now, this wasn't the one that we offloaded. Not only had the casket changed between Dallas and Bethesda, the wrapping around the body had changed too. According to the House Assassinations Committee, the body arrived at Bethesda in a body bag. That was not how it left Parkland Hospital. They had him wrapped in sheets at the time. And when we picked him up to put him in there, he was still tripping quite a bit of blood from the wound in the back of his head, whatever caused it. Uh, we put some more sheets in a mattress liner, plastic mattress liner inside the coffin to soak up this blood that was dripping, you know. We went on ahead and put him in the coffin and uh, closed the lid. Paul O'Connor describes the scene at Bethesda. We opened the whole casket up and there was a gray body bag, zip, yeah. zip shut. We unzipped the body bag and the president's body was lifted out of the, of the body bag. Uh, it's completely naked except for a sheet wrapped around his head. A bloody sheet. Now, when you put the president's body into the coffin, did you put the president's body into a body bag? No, sir. Well, most people don't know what a body bag is, so I happen to get one, and I'd like to know if this is, this is the kind of... This is a... Typically, this is it. Uh, this is maybe not the model that we use, but as you see, it's got the zipper on it. Uh, yeah. It's heavy plastic, gauge plastic, and... Uh, Typical body bag. This is a typical body bag. Is typical kind, body bag. Is this the kind of, basically this? Basically, this is the way it looked. Aubrey, does this bear any resemblance to the mattress cover you use to line the coffin to keep the blood away from the bottom of the coffin? No, sir. This one doesn't, no. What is, what is this? This is what we call a crash bag, or body bag, you could call it. We call them crash bags. And mattress cover wouldn't look like this at all? No, sir. It what? was a plastic, yeah. similar to this, but mattress cover has no, no zipper. And you used, you didn't use a body bag for no, the president? No, sir. No way. Absolutely no question about that? No way. How can you be certain? I was there. And I, you remember? I remember picking him up. I, I was one that, that had the blood on my shirt and everything from the, the body. If he'd been in a crash bag, you couldn't have got any blood on him because it's a sealed bag. I told Reich about Paul O'Connor's account of opening a body bag. To the bottom and he had to unzip the zipper. He didn't get one from us. I've interviewed the people in Dallas who put the president's body inside the casket in Dallas. There was no body bag used. For your information, those that people... That sounds strange. That sounds what? Sounds strange to me. Is there any possibility you're confused that it was, a, that it was anything but a body bag? Could you... Well, a body bag, uh, a mattress cover, uh, if that's what they said they used, does not have a zipper down the middle of it. Uh, Paul, they said they didn't use anything. They did not use a mattress cover. They said a mattress cover was used to keep blood off the bottom, but they didn't put him inside anything. Well, between Parkland and Bethesda, he was placed in a body bag. This is one of the most unique and tragic moments in the history of Andrews Air Force Base. The casket was different and the wrapping was different, but how could anything have been secretly changed? Wasn't Mrs. Kennedy always with the casket? She was, but unknown to her, the body was elsewhere. It did not arrive in the Gray Navy ambulance that took Mrs. Kennedy and the ceremonial casket to Bethesda. Now the ramp is being slowly lowered to the ground, containing the casket. And a Gray U.S. Navy ambulance has pulled into sight and is now directly in front of the ramp in which the casket still rests.
Dennis, after all these years, how can you be certain the vehicle at the back was black? Well, that's one of the things I remembered because Navy ambulances or military ambulances traditionally are gray. And I remember that night that that was black because it wasn't gray. Because I, and it wasn't a military... It wasn't a military vehicle. Was it, it was normal for non-military vehicles to put the loading dock? No, not normally. Dennis David was at the back of the hospital. He is one of several people whose accounts established that the body arrived at the back before the Navy ambulance with the large Dallas casket arrived at the front. After we offloaded and they took the casket, that, which we rented, stood that had President Kennedy's body in, I went back up front again to check my men on post. While at the front, he witnessed the arrival of two more caskets. First, a second shipping casket was offloaded from a helicopter. It's not clear what role this casket plays. Then he saw the large Dallas casket arrive in the Gray Navy ambulance from Andrews. I was on the rotunda on the second floor looking out. I saw a helicopter land, and I saw again another casket, the shipping type, similar to the one we just offloaded, being offloaded off a helicopter. And uh, then the motorcade pulled up in front, and uh, uh, I went back out in the passageway and was standing on the rotunda looking down into the foyer of the Naval Medical Center when Mrs. Kennedy or Jacqueline Kennedy came in. No, you saw, you actually saw Jackie arrive at yes. Bethesda. Yes, I did. Later on, a bunch of us were working at night, we were talking about two caskets. I said something about it and somebody said, well, there was another one on the uh, gray ambulance that came in in front of the entourage and we couldn't figure out which casket had President Kennedy's body in. And, some of the boys that were in the autopsy room said, well, he was in the first one, and that the other two were, were fakes. I don't know officially why they, there were three ambulances, but security was one of the rumors or one of the things that was speculated about. Dennis David didn't find it peculiar, but he saw the Navy ambulance arrive after a shipping casket was brought to the morgue. If he's right, then the body was at Bethesda before Jacqueline Kennedy. He's supported by Gerald Custer, the x-ray technician, now an x-ray technician in Pittsburgh. Custer says he was carrying autopsy x-rays to be developed when he saw Mrs. Kennedy arrive. When you encountered Jacqueline Kennedy, when you saw her in the lobby, had you already taken any x-rays? Well, we had an armful at the time. And uh, my uh, apron or gown that I had on was uh, bloody. I want you to know, I would like to ask you how you react to the fact that if, sh if you already had the x-rays in your hand, the body was already in the morgue, when she walked in the door, and yet she just got out of the ambulance containing the casket. How firm are you in your recollection that you saw Jackie when you already had taken x-rays? Is that without question, or, is, or would you say that you might waver on that? No, because I, I'm almost sure that I had x-rays in my arm at the time when I saw her. We had just finished taking some x-rays. That would mean that the casket in the ambulance parked right outside is empty. That would have to be it, because we had just left the morgue, and I'm sure that we took x-rays. I know we did, because we, have, we had a security man with us at the time. Dennis, is it possible you're wrong about the sequence? That in order to the sequence is crucial. If the body was in the morgue before Jacqueline and the Gray Navy ambulance arrived, then Jacqueline Kennedy was with an empty casket. But they, you're wrong about the sequence. That what you really, what really happened is that first you saw Jackie come in the front, and then you went around back and saw a black vehicle arrive at the loading dock. No way. I remember that vividly. Uh, the ambulance and we offloaded a casket 
at the back of the hospital a good 15 or 20 minutes before Jackie Kennedy came in. Dennis David and Gerald Custer both indicate that the body was already in the Bethesda morgue when Jacqueline Kennedy arrived. I've also spoken to others in Bethesda that night. They didn't know about the sequence, but they did talk of two ambulances. The explanation was always the same, security. Some called it the decoy ambulance. One said it was Navy strategy. But a key authority denies that these security measures were taken. In July 1980, I had a two-and-a-half-hour tape-recorded interview with General Chester Clifton, which I report at length in best evidence. General Clifton was the senior military aide to President Kennedy. He was aboard Air Force One and made arrangements by radio for the autopsy. Clifton insisted there was no decoy ambulance, that no special security arrangements were made. The FBI didn't know about any security arrangements either. I want to tell you that the FBI filed a report uh, and they had two agents go out to meet the plane. Two agents went out to meet the plane and to attend the autopsy. And those two agents talk about how they followed an Navy ambulance. They were part of the motorcade. The Jackie got into the ambulance. And they followed that motorcade containing the ambulance to Bethesda. Now, we've talked, and you've told me, and we know from your conclusions that the coffin in that ambulance is empty. Uh -huh. right. Do you think it's strange that you knew about something that apparently was unknown to the FBI that day? That you know that the coffin in there is empty. The FBI didn't know. How do I know the FBI didn't know that it was empty? I they give no indication. Yeah. Well, they give no indication. And Jacqueline Kennedy is kind of grief-struck as she watches her husband's body being put into the ambulance. She, do you think she knows that the, the, the box is empty? We've all seen pictures of Jackie at Andrews. How do you I explain it? I wouldn't have any idea, but all I know is, you know, all I know is what I know that that, that was a great. That we offloaded a gray, unmarked box shipping casket that later we I was told uh, contained the body of the president, and that the other the other ones were for security purposes that they were fakes or empty. Now. You know, we covered earlier what the uh, the purposes for there. Uh, I don't know. Uh, there could be a lot of speculation as to why. But there can be no speculation about the facts. Two ambulances, two caskets, different wrappings on the body, security measures unknown to the president's chief military aide and to the FBI. It indicates that someone had access to the body. And the most blatant evidence that someone changed the body is that it left Dallas with a small wound in the back of the head, about the size of an egg, and arrived at Bethesda with a wound four times as large. It left Dallas with a brain, and the Bethesda autopsy reports on a brain, a brain presumably removed from the president's cranium. Yet two of my witnesses say that when the body arrived, the cranium was empty. Again, Paul O'Connor, the Bethesda medical technician. In that particular case, there was no brain to be removed. It was all blown out. Okay. Going. Most of the cranium was empty except for a few pieces of brain matter. Gerald Custer, the Bethesda x-ray technician. I could fit both of my hands right inside the skull cavity. And like I had mentioned, that uh, I brought my hands back and there were still little pieces of uh, brain stem, or brain cells that I had to take off my hands. And there was no blood on it. At one point you actually did. Yeah, I put my hands right inside the skull. And I made the comment to read that my God, look at the size of this hole. The doctors were right there. Did you have the responsibility for telling them that the cranium was oh, empty? No, no, sir. Everybody looked as I recollect when they, we got the last part of the sheet off, there was a, just a gasp for the room, 
And I looked down and I said to myself, my God, there's no brain. It's all gone. What, what did anybody else say? Did you hear any comments from the others? Mm, well, there was a lot of mumbling and talking and everything, but I wasn't even paying attention to that. I was kind of wrapped up in my own thoughts about how massive the wound was and how bad it was and the fact that there was no brains. And you didn't hear anybody else talking about it? or? Oh, saying, I can't recollect yeah. uh, anybody saying anything specific. Uh, I see. So as a result of the cranium being empty, you didn't have to do the procedure to take out the brain? No, sir. No. Okay. When the Warren Report came out in 1964, or ever since then, when did you first realize that there was a supplementary autopsy report on a brain, uh, brain that's reported to weigh about 13, 1,400 grams, almost a complete brain? Well, I don't know where they got it from. Uh, it surely wasn't the president's. Did anybody say anything about uh, there being no brain in the... Well, the comment was made that the brain was removed. But to my best knowledge, I don't remember seeing any, any saw cuts or any knife cuts. But uh, it's not saying that it couldn't have been removed. Did you question the purpose of the x-rays you were taking? Yes, I asked, I said, what's the sense of taking the x-rays if there's no, nothing there? He said, well, that's not for you to say. You go ahead and do them. Another irregularity in the autopsy, I got to say, is that you know that the president's cranium was empty yes. at Bethesda. Mostly empty. I'd say 90% empty, yes. At Dallas, it wasn't empty. There was a small egg-sized wound at the right rear of the head, about the size of an egg. Two and three-quarter inches is the measurements given by the Dallas doctors in sworn testimony, and that's it. Two and three-quarter inch. The that's wound odd. at Bethesda is four times larger. Oh, uh, at least. Were you aware of that before? No, I wasn't. That's strange. As I said, when he was brought out of the casket, he did have a massive head wound. Unless, at Parkland, they decided to do a partial craniotomy, and then again, I, they opened the brain. It was jagged opening all the way through the head. Yes. Uh, tell, tell uh, what's a craniotomy for the lay audience? Well, a craniotomy is an operation, a brain operation, where they bore holes in the brain and the cranium to get to the brain. Right. Um, would that also be called, in plain English, surgery? Yes, sir. Surgery. What made the FBI agents write that there had been surgery of the head area? In 1966, I called James Siebert, one of the two authors of the report. He refused to answer my question. He only said, the report stands. I wrote the FBI asking the same question and received a routine reply. But in 1977, under the Freedom of Information Act, I found this 1966 memo from Assistant Director Alex Rosen to Assistant Director Carthur Deloche about my call and letter. The memo focused on the surgery statement. It referred to the report as, quote, information orally furnished by the autopsy physician. I found other memos indicating the same thing. The FBI position boils down to this. Our agents wrote it because they heard it from a doctor. Surgery. Is the major thesis of my book correct? Did someone get access to the body and surgically change the body between the Dallas shooting and the Bethesda autopsy? Consider the pattern of contradictions. The body left Dallas with a small head wound, about 35 square centimeters, and arrived in Bethesda with a wound four times as large, about 170 square centimeters. The body left Dallas with a brain and arrived in Bethesda without a brain. The body left Dallas wrapped in sheets and arrived in Bethesda in a zippered body bag. The body left Dallas in a ceremonial casket and arrived in Bethesda in a cheap shipping casket. The pattern is clear. What these witnesses say cannot be ignored. I know. I was there, I saw it. There's no doubt in my mind. Now, 
what their reasons for not saying this now I don't know I don't I can't I can't call inside their head to find out but I know that there were two caskets and I know that the body was that the first casket we offloaded that we later were told was the one with Kennedy was a shipping casket it was not the formal casket that you showed me in these pictures earlier uh, why people persist you know that's what I don't understand why can't they bring this stuff out why can't they make it public to the people and let the people see it why they have to hide it? I, I don't understand it. Even 20 years later, I don't understand it. A great many people don't understand why we don't have the truth about this whole affair. One reason is the military order not to talk. The Navy kept track of everyone in the morgue that night, and everyone who was there, like X-ray technician Gerald Custer, like medical technician Paul O'Connor, were ordered not to talk about what they'd seen or heard. It was a written order. Each man had to sign it. The penalty for disobedience, court-martial. To a man, they obeyed it. For 10 years, Custer was afraid to tell his wife that he had taken Kennedy's x-rays. This order was rescinded in 1978. You've just seen the first filmed interviews with these important witnesses. In fact, none of them testified before either major investigation into the assassination, neither the Warren Commission in 1964 or the House Select Committee in 1978. Another obstacle to the truth has been the autopsy photographs. Normally, such pictures are an integral part of a homicide investigation, but not in this case. Because of the reluctance of the Chief Justice, Earl Warren, and objections from the Kennedy family, this material was not used as evidence. Instead, three schematic drawings were used, and the testimony of the Navy autopsy doctors was accepted without authentication. In one of the most important homicide investigations ever conducted, critical facts turned on one man's word about what a mother man's body looked like. The testimony of the Navy autopsy doctor was considered the best evidence. By 1976, when the second investigation began, the matter of the autopsy photographs again came up. The House Select Committee demanded access. Again, the Kennedy family resisted. A compromise was struck. A panel of experts examined the photographs, but as far as the public was concerned, three drawings were used. The second investigation also concluded the president was struck twice from behind. But unlike the Warren Commission, their conclusion was based on the autopsy photographs, now considered to be the best evidence. But are they? The committee's expert panel says they're authentic, yet one of the committee's own consultants alleges they're forgeries. Can we trust this evidence and what the experts have told us? Why can't we see the evidence ourselves? In 1982, I obtained copies. The source was a former Secret Service official. When I first saw them, I thought they should never be published out of respect for the Kennedy family. However, they are crucial evidence in this case, and the issue of respect for the living is in conflict with justice for the dead. I believe the American people have a right to see what is now considered the best evidence. In 1988, I published these pictures in the new edition of my book, making them available to the public for the first time. These pictures contradict both the descriptions of the Dallas doctors and the Bethesda autopsy report. For example, here's the picture of the back of President Kennedy's head. In Dallas, there was a wound there. The Bethesda autopsy report describes an even bigger hole. But in this photograph, the official autopsy photo, there's no hole at all. So where is this wound? Actually, according to the autopsy photographs, it's at the top of the head. But in the autopsy x-ray, why there, it's at the front of the head. Thus, the autopsy photographs contradict not only what was seen in Dallas, but also what was seen at Bethesda, as well as the x-ray that was supposedly taken at Bethesda. Thus, the issue of authenticity applies not only to the president's body, but to the x-rays and photographs of the body as well. A final point. 
and another reason why we haven't gotten to the truth, public misunderstanding. Many people don't understand how the investigations functioned in the first place. They think the whole government would have to be involved if there was a plot. That, of course, is not the case. I don't believe the FBI or the Warren Commission found the truth and then covered it up. The problem is the crime was never solved in the first place. The whole issue of body alteration just never came up. The altered body falsely linked the gun found in the sixth floor of the Texas School Book Depository Building with the crime that took place on the street below, making it appear in the evidence that President Kennedy was shot by one man firing from behind, by Lee Harvey Oswald, making it appear that the assassination was a quirk of fate, that a lone malcontent hiding in a warehouse murdered the President of the United States. The Warren Commission accepted this story and passed it on to the American public and to history that a man in a building shot a man in a car. However, if the body was altered, that story is false, and President Kennedy was removed from office as a result of a covert operation. Who's responsible? I don't know who altered the body, but I do know who had the body. The U.S. government had the body. The body was always in the custody of a group of Secret Service agents and a Navy Rear Admiral. Consequently, if it was a covert operation, it had to be a domestic covert operation. What can be done about this? In light of this new evidence, a third national investigation is warranted, focused on the autopsy, focused on the chain of possession of the body. It may be too late for justice in this case, but it's never too late for the truth. And the truth in this case can only be found by directing the proper questions to the proper witnesses under oath. Otherwise, we have to accept the fact that on November 22, 1963, America had a secret election. Thank you for listening to episode 92 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.